Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Moni Jensen. What a bunch of very momentous days. I'm still trying to piece together and understand fully the events of January 6th in the U.S. Capitol and the weeks that have followed, including the swearing in of President Joe Biden and all that surrounded it. And I can only describe how I feel as like tense optimism, Peter. And the tense part keeps growing as news unravels about the events themselves and how the right-wing militias uh, violently interrupted a constitutional process. And so I wonder whether or not this was an actual attempted coup d'etat can be debated, but there is no debate that this was as close as one gets to interrupting democracy in the U.S., no less. And as to the optimism part... I am optimistic. That's my nature. But optimism won't cut it. The government has to restore normality as quickly as possible, whatever that means. Moises Naim, global expert and superstar political analyst, will join us soon to share his insight on all this. Moody, feelings aside, I've been looking at these events and I'm just struck by how nearly impossible it was for anybody to fathom something like this happening here. But now that it did happen, the question for the new administration for the press, for the courts, for for all of us, whether we're in America or not in America, must be to determine the right response and make sure it never happens again. And another question in my head is whether the U.S. can learn from other countries that have experienced breakdowns in democracy or massive moments of division. How did they choose to heal these problems? And some countries that have suffered these assaults on democracy and self-determination have established truth and reconciliation commissions. Perhaps the best known one is the one that was established by Nelson Mandela in South Africa. Other countries, for example, Germany, a deeply democratic nation, has limits on free speech. You just cannot publish or promote materials considered anti-constitutional and dangerous to the state. Spain, on the other hand, recently chose a highly legalistic path of prosecution for insurrection and sedition of leaders in the Catalan effort to break away from Spain. Colombia, your country, Muni, recently established in its peace accords a process of restorative justice to rehabilitate offenders by sentencing them to perform concrete acts of reconciliation with the broader community. Bottom line, Muni, I fear that the U.S., if it just sweeps this under the rug, the monster is just going to come back sooner and sooner than we think. We always have to go to the Greeks to see what they have to say. And recently, the nation quoted a very ironic Greek journalist who said, it is unlikely for a coup to happen in the U.S. because there is no American embassy in Washington. This is, of course, alluding to the interventionist muscles to, that have executed many coups around the world in history. But in this case, the attack on the U.S. Capitol did have a White House ready to incite violent right-wing actors in the name of protecting the country against supporters of a supposed imaginary radical left, which was ready to interrupt a peaceful transfer of power. The bombing in Oklahoma a few decades nonwithstanding, Americans are simply not used to far-right attacks on their own country. But certainly the U.S. has supported very similar actions abroad, like in Chile, the prime example of the U.S. supporting and enabling a dictatorship under General Pinochet. And now movements like the Proud Boys and ancillary groups have one thing in common. They feel disgust for whatever they define as the left, and they believe that violence is justified to defend these so-called values when the institutions in the country give a voice to social Democrats. So the question is how to put the pieces together, or as Peter says, to put the genie back into the bottle. How? 
it's hard to imagine how, but you know, one thing is clear that the images from January 6th were the last nail in the coffin of the Trump era, and some say of the idea of American exceptionalism. When I hear politicians, Mooney, say that this is not America, it just sounds hollow now because it turns out that this is also America. The fragility of U.S. democracy, the widespread public rejection of election results, the interruption of institutional process, this can all leave the country having to look in the mirror when designing foreign policies to export democratic principles. Imagine how other countries are going to, imagine how Putin is going to look at somebody in the eye when you talk about democratic principles. There just seems to be an extraordinary naivete among citizens about the extent and scope of these protesters' intentions. The influx of photos and internet memes of horned and face-painted rioters sometimes reduced the assault to a bunch of fringe lunatics. But it was not a mob gone crazy. It's not going away. It's a well-armed, determined force that will stop at nothing to push its extremist agenda. And the fear, I thought, was like really best expressed by this super sober Washington Post op-ed writer, David Ignatius, is that the cancer has spread to the military, to the police, to other federal paramilitary groups like the Border Patrol and alcohol, tobacco, and firearms divisions. That's my worry. What happens when it's in all these paramilitary groups? Well, we have a new Biden government in. He's gotten straight to work, promised to heal in his speech and in his actions. But the damage is done, Peter, and the U.S. must come to terms with its fractured present. Otherwise, it's not going to go away. It will also serve the country well to understand how these realities have changed the way the world sees what was once a bastion of democracy and freedom. The question again is how, and we're left with many other questions. Will Trumpism survive? We've seen and heard people discuss that over and over. What will happen to the Republican Party? Is it going to turn into one, two, three factions? But at Altamar, we like to take a longer view, and we're going to dive deep into how the U.S. place in the world will shift, and will the U.S. ask itself the right questions, and how the rest of the world is going to react. Okay, Mooney, so to help us finance her, let's invite Moises Naim, journalist and author of multiple books on world affairs, speaker, magazine editor, distinguished fellow of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, TV superstar, print journalist, and our good friend. Moises, welcome to Altamar. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Delighted to be chatting with you. So, Moises, let me just let me just start it off with, I mean, the world witnessed an unimaginable series of events in the United States on January 6th. Give us your impressions of the situation. And in your own words, you know, the title of your recent column will be How the World Remembered That Day. So how will the world now, with some hindsight, I mean, put yourself a year from now, how will the world remember that day? It greatly depends on the reactions to what happened and what the, the Biden administration will do, what the Congress will do, and what the political system will do. We can see a renewal of American democracy. We can see reforms. We can see all kinds of initiatives to make sure that conditions that created the horrible situations we have lived, that include but not exclusively what happened in the takeover of the Capitol, that the country, this country, the United States, surely needs renewal, uh, reforms, and rethinking of a lot of its institutions and democracy. So we can go that way. And uh, it's, uh, it's always uh, the, the metaphor is the person that survives 
a heart attack and then develops a, a very good habits in terms of health and, and, and nutrition and exercise uh, as a result of the scare. So let's hope that the scare we have witnessed recently leads to the changes in habits and political lifestyles that are necessary. But it can go in the other way. It can go in the way of uh, division, in the way of uh, fragmentation, deepening polarization, and that all of the messages that President Biden sent in his inaugural speech about unity, about the need to get together uh, and join a common front for the well-being of the nation, maybe those uh, calls and those attempts fail and the country continues to be fragmented, paralyzed, uh, and uh, pol polarized. Let me ask you just a blunt question. As somebody who's originally from Latin America, uh, that has seen its shares of coup d'etats, in your eyes, was this a coup? And what makes it a coup or not a coup? It was a failed coup. Like, it was a failed coup. I, I have no doubt that it was a coup. It was an attempt uh, to undermine and ignore the will of the people. Uh, and we saw it, 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 the very interesting aspect of this, it had two aspects. One is that in a normal coup or a normal coup attempt, the military, the armed forces are important protagonists. And this didn't happen this time here. And the other thing is, was is how transparent it was. We, we, you know, it, it was reported daily. We, every day we, we woke up reading the news that yet another attempt by President, uh, former President uh, Trump and his allies in Congress and in the Republican Party were attempting again to undermine and negate uh, the will of the people. Moises, you mentioned Joe Biden's words of healing in his inauguration that everybody around the world listened to, but will this put an end to the very embarrassing chapter uh, of U.S. history that we've witnessed and begin to restore the U.S. place as a constructive global player? So in other case, is, is he like the great healer, the silver bullet that will uh, reverse this reputation issue and this fragmentation issue? I felt like he was like the grandfather saying to the children, stop, we need to stop. Anyway, that, that was my impression from the speech. It's all of that. I think I agree with uh, all of that. Um, the only thing I would add is that it is urgent that this becomes a cause, not for the President Biden alone, but it becomes a social, national kind of, of, of movement that is even bipartisan, that has some common grounds that people agree on some very basic things that need to be achieved uh, regardless of your political party and that you work together. Uh, the main risk here is the high expectations uh, that surround uh, the arrival to the White House of uh, President Biden. And um, the fact that danger is here is that he's left alone, that he will have to do this alone. And, and, and then and also he has two years uh, before there are new, new elections in, in the U.S. Congress and uh, his party may lose the majority or that, that it has in the House or something can happen in the Senate. So they know, I think the, the, the Biden people know that they have uh, two short years to move forward uh, deeply in the reforms that are needed. And they started with a bank immediately after the inauguration. They already issued uh, a bunch of highly controversial initiatives that would have been uh, simply impossible had they not have uh, more control, even though many of uh, those initiatives that he launched on the first day in office uh, didn't require congressional authorization. We've 
seen Trump not only as a perpetrator, but as a symptom of a growing nativist supremacist trends that we've seen all over the world and even discussed it on this podcast in Hungary, Poland, Brazil, other countries. The question is, now that it has gone so far, is it possible to reverse it? Is there any way to heal uh, quickly what is, seems to be a growing trend? Absolutely. And it is a growing trend. And as you say, Muni, uh, we, we observe it uh, around the world. And so it's very important to uh, attack as, as usual. Uh, you need to go to root causes. Uh, be careful to think that dealing with symptoms uh, is enough. Uh, you need to deal with symptoms, of course, but then you need uh, in, in the medium long run, do things that uh, will deal with the root causes, the, the underlying conditions that create this wave of nativism, of, of violence, uh, where violence has become a, a very uh, common way of doing politics. It has always been the case in, in some countries, but not in these mature democracies. Uh, you know, this, uh, the, the fact that violence that has invaded the public discourse uh, is very worrisome. But says, let me just go back to this issue of what can we learn from other countries? And, you know, I, I like to say, how do we put the genie back in the bottle? And some countries have attempted to do that. I, I spoke of that just earlier in the podcast. I mean, in Germany, you just can't say certain things. In South Africa, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And recently in Spain, to deal with the secessionists in Catalonia, they, you know, adopted this highly legalistic going after them for sedition and insurrection. And even in Colombia, Mooney's country, you know, you had this attempt at restorative justice. D does any of that have any lessons for the United States? Sure. I think all of them have a little bit uh, uh, a component and can make a contribution to what the United States can do. I think there's already calls for 9-11-like uh, commission. Remember, after 9-11, there was a commission to, to understand the causes and, and dissect what really happened. So there are already calls to do that with what happened with January 6th with a takeover by armed gangs of the capital. So there's a little bit of that. But I think that the main sources of lessons for the United States in this period is the United States. It's not overseas. The United States needs to learn from the United States. The one pattern, whenever there are these major tectonic events uh, like we had 9-11 or during the financial crisis of 2008-2009, the common pattern is an overreaction to the crisis, where the reaction uh, of the government, of the U.S. government, ends up having more consequences, longer, uh, more permanent effects than the fact or the event that triggered it. 9-11 um, led, uh, led us with the longest war, you know, what is now called forever wars, and surely had far more, the reaction of the United States to 9-11 had more consequences for the world and touched more people and more nations in the world than the attack themselves. I don't want to minimize them, but I just in terms of actual facts and, and, and the proportion uh, is huge. The same happened with the financial crisis and, and there, there is a long list that shows that these major cataclysmic events are, are usually trigger a response from the U.S. government, the U.S. political system that is far more important and lasting than the event itself. So let's hope that we, from, from these events, we derive 
lessons from the past in the United States and try to contain the, the temptation to go overboard, overreact uh, and uh, massively generate conditions that are far more important than the, the, the nativists or the thugs that took over the capital. As you mentioned that, I think about the pictures that everybody saw of the National Guard sleeping in the Capitol. And, and I was wondering, because we had discussed this before, is that's an example of overreacting. But I see kind of three scenarios, the overreacting and just kind of solving everything with a, with a security arm. The underreacting, which is throwing everything under the rug and saying we have a new president, he's kind of the elder healer, and we're not going to reckon. But uh, Peter mentioned Colombia. Do you see this country involving itself into some sort of a restorative justice or truth and justice commission, something that would be a deep kind of soul-searching fight to find a, a solution and to find an explanation for this nativism and this violence that has erupted? Yes, Muni, I think that's uh, going to be a big dilemma, a big discussion that is going to be with us in the United States and perhaps elsewhere in the world. Uh, what to do? Uh, there, there is it's very tempting, and, and we already heard some uh, senators, Republican senators, saying, you know, move on, don't, 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 you know, there's no need to do more than what happened, forget about it, and let's move on. Lindsey Graham was very explicit about that, uh, Senator Graham. So there is that. And there are others that include me uh, that say, no, we, you know, these were punishable acts. These are uh, unforgivable. It is important to identify and apply uh, all, all the weight of the law uh, on those who perpetrated that crime. And so that's a, a different way of looking at it that I think it's very important that these things uh, don't go unpunished. But after having said that, uh, it's very easy to say those who broke the law should be tried and have uh, consequences, pay the consequences of their actions. That's easy and it's, it's non-controversial. What is more controversial is how are you going to treat uh, the four years of the Trump administration? Are you going to dig out all of the malfeasance, all of the possible crimes and misdemeanors that, that took place during four years. So uh, are you going to go after Trump or, uh, or, or not? That's a very uh, central theme. And an, and an overarching uh, theme about uh, all of these, and, and as you know, Muni, in Colombia is a central theme, is the tension between peace and justice. Uh, if you try to make justice, Uh, then you may be stoking violence and uh, making peace and unity more difficult. If you move completely on the side of unity, and th then you may be undermining justice. So that's a tension that has no easy answers, but th that tension is going to be with us in the United States in months to come. Something that's very concerning are, as investigations progress, there are some perpetrators that are insiders, talking about local police forces, uh, members of the military, some actors in local legislatures, uh, even inside the Republican Party. So the illness is, is on the inside. And, and I think that requires kind of a very deep, I don't know, exorcism of all of these, uh, of all of these trends. Do you see the country at this point with all of the problems and the challenges that the government is facing that the security forces are facing to go in the, in, in the way of trying to heal or trying to eliminate these violent actors from within? 
Yes, and, and one of the things is that uh, every day we discover new layers of complexity to what happened and to what drove the, the movements and who, there was more organization uh, behind what happened than to what was originally assumed. So th this is going on and will continue to go on. And it started also at a more macro level. Uh, as you saw, there is a debate about uh, the impeachment by the Senate, the, the impeachment trial of President uh, Trump uh, by the Senate, in which there is the debate, you know, Biden and his uh, administration, they want to move on. They need Congress to be actively engaged in supporting uh, legislation uh, aligned to their priorities. So they want Congress fully centered uh, and focused on that. And there are others that say, no, we need to impeach Trump. And, and the Senate has to spend time doing that. And so there is the point of view that says we can do both. And the point of view that says, uh, no, we can do one of the two. So this is um, a, an example of, of the kinds of things, the kinds of tensions that are going to be with us for a while. He says, let's look a little overseas and to Biden's foreign policy. And how does all this affect U.S. alliances? And how will... You know, the U.S., which has been this, you know, sometimes interventionist, certainly, but always a voice for human rights and for democracy. I mean, will people take this seriously now? And how do will allies in particular take it seriously? And then I have a, another question about how this affects some of our antagonists. But let's let's deal with allies first. The Allies uh, now have to deal with the fact that the United States may no longer be a reliable ally. So uh, Biden can go to Europe uh, and uh, declare Europe uh, the U.S. best friends and uh, that together they're going to coordinate uh, things that go from climate to fight terrorism to trade and all of the list in, 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 that we know of things that require international cooperation to be effective. So uh, Biden can do that and he will do that. And Tony Blinken, his secretary of state, nominated, nominated secretary of state, has already been very explicit that rebuilding alliances, creating new ones, deepening existing alliances with foreign partners to achieve the international goals of the United States is a priority. So that may be very well for Washington. Is not so easy to swallow to those that have seen the United States move in very surprising directions. And, and uh, so the question now is not if the United States is a good partner. The question is for how long. What happens in, if in four years uh, another president comes in and then does reverts again everything? So other countries and other allies will move forward in, in, in strengthening alliances with the United States. But in the back of their minds, there will always be the need to have escape clauses and making sure that you're not betting the house on a partner that may that has gone a little bit crazy. And will the lessons here, let's talk a little bit about the antagonists and our opponents, will, you know, if you look at whether in Hungary or in Poland or in the Philippines or in Brazil, Will this, what has happened here in the end, because in the end, Biden has won and institutions, you know, have survived. Will this minimize people's, some leaders' desires to stoke populism? Or uh, will they just feel that Biden is too weak to really be influential? 
There are two dimensions to that very good question. One is uh, what is the domestic policy that these uh, new uh, autocrats that are stealthy in their ways, but very effective in terms of concentrating powers and behaving as tyrannies. So what, they, what would they do in terms of their domestic politics? Is what's happening in the United States, and as you say, the defeat of this coup that, that failed, but that was going to surely bring more autocracy. Is that going to be used domestically in Hungary or the Philippines or in, in, in other countries uh, that have uh, these uh, kinds of autocratic uh, regimes? But then is there foreign policy? And so in, in terms of domestic policy in each country, there's a different setting, a different political reality and different institutions. And then the question is, uh, will, are we going to see a deepening of the alliances of the autocrats? You know, is there an autocratic alliance, uh, coalition of countries? Countries that are autocrats, again, as I said, stealthily, very often uh, now has become fashionable that you are, do you undermine democracy in a stealthy way? And you, and you still try to present yourself to the world as a democracy, but in your daily practices, you're an autocracy. So are, are they collaborating? Are they, will they join? Uh, we have seen both China and Russia trying to recruit nations uh, to their camp in terms of uh, developing a shared front, which can be called a shared front uh, anti against democracy. There is, globally, there is an all-out war on checks and balances everywhere. You know, checks, the checks and balances that are the pillar of democracy are under attack everywhere. And in some cases, it's just, as I said, purely domestic. And in others, as we have seen with the rapid interference in other, in other countries' politics, uh, uh, the ambition is to attack and, uh, and weaken the checks and balances in other countries, very often through cyber attacks. Moises, we've run out of time. We could go on for another few hours. Thank you very much for joining us on Altamar. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you too. Peter, it's uh, not often that you end an interview having so many more follow-up questions. So I do wish we had had more time to chat with, with Moises. But some of the things that really strike me are American ability to kind of bounce back. And there seems to be this kind of newfound enthusiasm and everything is over now and sweeping things under the rug. And I wonder if the genie will rear its ugly head in a few uh, months, even if the issues that now people don't feel very eager to address in terms of the violence, the perpetrators and the infiltration into the institutions of government and how to deal with, with those the, the racism is not going to go away. Trump went away, but Trumpism and that radical Trumpism is still there. And my concern as I listen to this, to these answers are um, we're not going to learn from other countries. We're going to just brush everything under the rug. Yeah, I think I, I took away two things. And by the way, I agree with you that there's going to be this attempt to brush, brush it under the rug. I mean, we really should have had this 9-11 commission or this Truth and Reconciliation Commission right after Trump's election, because after eight years of the Obama administration, clearly things were swept under the rug or ignored, or we pretended that this was not as big a deal as it now turns out to be, because you know Trump is only the symptom of this. And the, the second thing that I took away from Moises's talk was the American penchant for overreacting. 
like we did in 9-11? Are we going to now sort of overreact and create a security situation, which is actually worse than the problem itself? It's true. And I think that that is the, the, the main danger. And we, I think we, sh- we will see in the next coming months to see if this overreaction, more than an overreaction, is just like looking for the solution far away from where the problem is. And that's kind of the big risk. But let's try to continue to be optimistic. Um, these are uh, good days. Things have markedly improved. And, and we should give Joe Biden a chance to enjoy his honeymoon short as it might be. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Altamar. Altamar. 